0: Well, good morning. My name's Eric, and I get to be one of the pastors here at downtown Bethel as well, and I want to welcome you to one week away from Christmas. That's right, seven days till Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Some say it's the most wonderful time of the year, and if you've tried to move around on our main thoroughfares in the city, you know that everyone else is also actively trying to get every conceivable thing done. (laughs) Which is ironic if you think about it, because the Advent season, Christmas, is that time when we are really supposed to pause, to, contempl- to be contemplative, to, to celebrate, and to commemorate that which has been done for us, where we were powerless to effect anything whatsoever, It has been done for us, and yet for whatever reason, Christmas tends to be the time when we are rushing and rushing, hustling and bustling, trying to make our way. But Christmas is that time when everything we need has actually already been done for us. And so I want that truth to break in and invade some of us because that's what Christmas is supposed to do. I might put it this way. Christmas is God's invasion and intervention into human futility and fear, so that man can again have peace with God. Now, I don't know every one of your situations, your circumstances. I don't know all of your stories, but I'd be willing to bet that at some level, every single person in this room is in some way affected by, impacted by, burdened down by some level of futility or fear. There is some aspect to your life where you think, have this fear of if they find out that about me, all is lost. Or what am I really doing any of this for in my job, in my life, in my church, in my community, in my nation? Is there a point and a purpose to any of this? But Christmas is God's invasion and intervention into human futility so that man can have peace with God. We wonder, what has really happened this year? What will really happen next year? I heard an artist recently say, and put this to song, she said, if I can just get through December, everything will be okay in January. (laughs) Except that it won't. I wonder about you as I wonder about me. Am I any less fearful this Christmas than I was last Christmas? Do I have any less frustrations this Christmas than I did last Christmas? Do I feel any less futility this Christmas than I did last Christmas? See, it's a time for us as a church to actually come together congregationally and be reminded and remind one another of our big idea for this entire Advent season and series. And it goes like this, God is with us. We've been talking about this whole Advent series this month of December, that we are to be experiencing Emmanuel, the with us God. Our big idea, God is with us because he is the with us God, taken from that little passage in Isaiah 7.14. So what if Christmas was that great, great exchange counter? In God's economy... What if Christmas and Advent really was this great cosmic exchange where you could literally trade any panic you have for peace? Do you believe that's possible? Do you believe that's God's plan and his purpose and his power? What if you could trade frustration for exhilaration? Frustration is an expectation not met. Exhilaration is when your expectations have been met and exceeded. What if you could actually trade frustration for exhilaration? What if you could trade futility for purpose? This is the gospel. We have very good news. God is with us. Now, so far in our Advent series, we looked at King Herod, how he experienced Emmanuel, and his decision point was, I will not have this man as king. I will not bend the knee. In fact, I will do all that I can to kill him and to remove him from my presence so that he will no longer be a threat or an irritant. Then we looked at Mary, how she received Emmanuel, that she worshiped, she praised, she treasured this truth in her heart. Last week, we looked at the Magi, these stargazers from the East who came two years after the birth of Jesus, and they had great joy because they saw that God had returned his glory to Israel, and they rejoiced with great rejoicing. This morning, We're going to pivot back, and we're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke. We've already heard Shay read some of our passages this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages that you will hear in any Christmas season, at any time during Advent, is the passage of Luke chapter 2. For some of you, you might even have the visual of a Charlie Brown Christmas where Charlie's just so frustrated. Charlie Brown's been named the director, but it's sort of a spoof because he's really an idiot and he doesn't know how to do anything and everyone's getting at each other's throats and there's just kind of conflict. And finally, someone screams out, does anybody know the meaning of Christmas? Lights, please, says Linus as he goes to center stage and the lights all tune in on him. And he begins to read from Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. It is the only time... In the Charlie Brown series, cartoon or comic strip, where you will ever see Linus drop his blanket. Interesting. It's Charles Schultz's way of saying this is strength, this is contentedness, this is peace. And so he begins to read from Luke chapter 2, and I want to do the same thing. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world shall be registered. In those days, in those days. I think it's hard for us, these 2,000 years removed, to understand the enormity of what Luke means when he says, in those days. Because remember, Luke is writing a two-volume apologetic, a two-volume set to defend the veracity, the reality, the glory, and the grandeur of the gospel. The Gospel of Luke is about the birth of the Christ. The book of Acts is about the birth of the church. And so he's writing later to sort of put together almost a legal defense of the truth of the coming of Christ and how that has worked itself out in the church. And so he says to his later readers, Luke, a Gentile, a Greek, in those days, just in case people didn't know exactly what was going on, in those days, he's talking specifically about Israel. In those days, God had been silent for 400 years. God was not speaking through the prophets. He was not involved in their sacrifice at the temple. He had departed, as we read in the book of Ezekiel. For 10 chapters, the glory of God departs. The last words of your Old Testament are curse and destruction. And God goes quiet. The Babylonians had come in and taken the southern kingdoms and taken them off into exile. The, su- the northern kingdoms were already gone. And then the Persians came into power. They displaced the Babylonians. And then the Greeks came in. And they completely inculturated the vast majority of their conquest. And then finally Rome was in power. And Rome was heavy-footed. And they would kill anybody that did not comply. They had made the Mediterranean Sea a Roman lake. And they were oppressive. And they were invaders. And they were very, very costly. They would take your assets, your monies, to expand their empire. And they were alone for 400 years. Oh, there was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There was currently no war. That's because Rome had killed everybody. No war sounds really good as long as you're Roman. But if you were a Judean or if you are from the Germanic tribes or the Gaelic tribes or the Syrian peoples, you were probably just dead. In those days, at just the right time, God begins to do something really marvelous. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, whose title, by the way, is Savior of the World. There's a statue in Philippi, Caesar Augustus, Savior of the World. We eagerly await our Savior from Rome. But the Bible wants us to understand, oh, he had power, make no mistake, but he was not sovereign. All of his movements, all of his machinations, all of his maneuverings we're all superintended by the one who is the savior of the world, who is sovereign. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered because the way you grow your empire is by taking all the assets, all of the financial worth of all of your conquered subjects, and you increase taxes, and so you need to know who they are. This was a great, brilliant administrative move. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this little passage, Luke 2, 2, has caused all kinds of problems for all kinds of people for all kinds of centuries, because the timing is wrong. We know when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and it doesn't fit, it doesn't match. And so for centuries, people had a problem with Luke chapter 2, until about 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago, surprise, surprise, everyone, Archaeological discoveries confirmed. Oh, Quirinius was actually governor of Syria twice. So our Bible is not to be untrusted. This is truth. This is accurate. It was actually during the governorship of Quirinius over Syria. He was governor twice. We just didn't know it confirmed until only about 20 years ago. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So everyone's got to pull up in this massive amount of inconvenience, this massive amount of irritation. You've got to stop what you're doing. You've got to make a trip. And you've got to go and register in your quote-unquote hometown. Because at this point, Joseph and Mary live up in Nazareth in the Galilee. But their hometown, or his hometown at least, is in Bethlehem, the city of David because he's from the tribe of Judah, and so is she. The people of Nazareth were Judeans. They were from the tribe of Judah who had been misplaced. They had sort of migrated up there to avoid the persecutions. And so they called that place Netzerim. We are the Judah ones who are the new shoot of Jesse. And that's why the place was called Nazareth. We're the the new shoot of the tribe of Judah in the Galilee. But it wasn't where they were supposed to be. So they had to return to the city of David, Bethlehem, the granary, about five miles south of Jerusalem. And Each went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. Well, he went south, but he went up in elevation. He went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, Mary didn't technically have to go. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of question. Why does Mary make this journey? This is not easy. By the way, she's already made this journey previously when she went to see her cousin Elizabeth. Apparently, she goes back up. It's 90 miles, about a five- or six-day journey for her. And now she's very pregnant. And so the idea is Joseph wanted her to be with him when he has to go and register. He didn't want the baby to be born while he's not there. He didn't want there to be any sort of scandal if the baby should be born while he's not there, and people have more chit-chat and gossip. And so she comes along. Now, I've Never been pregnant, I suspect. Walking 90 miles across rough Judean hills at full pregnancy is not pleasant. I, or riding a donkey, even less. But this is what these two have to do. Now, I want you to think about that. Because I wouldn't draw it up that way if I was Joseph, if I was Mary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw it up that way. But frequently, God uses our irritations and our inconveniences to put us in proper place and posture to show people who Jesus is. When you're interrupted, when you are inconvenienced, stop, think, is this an opportunity for God to show Christ in me? More than likely, yes. We are to think rightly. We are to understand, just like Joseph and Mary probably still didn't understand the full enormity of what's about to happen. Some older English translations will go ahead and say that Joseph and Mary were married because it was just so scandalous. No, they were betrothed. They were married to be married. Not quite yet. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, you would think that Dr. Luke is going to give all the information. Dr. Luke's going to go into some pretty specific technical medical terms. Nope. And she gave birth, and that's it. That's it. We know that the majority of Luke's gospel was told to her by Mary, told to him by Mary herself. And the sense, the prevailing thought is that as Mary is recounting that night, she just kind of stops and goes, "That's all I'll say about that." But he was born because he's human, completely naturally, because he's human. Verse seven. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Why would she wrap him in swaddling cloths? Because he's human. And that's what you did to newborn babies. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is so brief. It's so cryptic. We've tried to help with Western pageantry and imagery and imagination, perhaps to our detriment. The term here inn is not the Hotel Six. It's not the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 10 when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan puts the injured guy on his donkey, takes him into town, and puts him in an inn. This is a different word. No room for them in the inn is the upstairs family room. The inn of the household is where Jesus and his disciples take the last supper. It's an upper room, usually a guest room, large, no interior walls. It's just a big room. But there's no room in that room Why? Because everybody had come from all over the place to Bethlehem, who was associated with that central family, and they all just got to cram in. And there was probably other families, maybe even other pregnant people up in that room already. And so there's nowhere for them to go. And so they had to go into the stable. Now, we think stable. We think, ah, East Texas, big red walls, white X's, sliding doors, horses running. No, no, no. Think small limestone cave covered in manure. That's what it was. The houses in that part of the Judean rugged hillside are very small, built onto a a cliff ledge. And on the side, they would gouge out a little pocket from the limestone, and that's where the sheep would stay. And the sheep would fill that place with what sheep produce. And a manger, I hate to break all of our images, was not a Bunch of wood that someone had taken off some forklift pallets and arranged it perfectly like this and thus. No, it's a chunk of rock that someone has crudely gouged out a little bit of an oval to pour in water or feed for the animals. Into that was Jesus laid. The most ignominious, unglamorous, non glorious confines. Right there in the filth of the earth is the creator of the earth deposited. It really is amazing. The condescension. Verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When it was time, it was simply time. Verse eight, and in the same region, there were shepherds in the field. If you can listen to your Bible, you would hear a record scratch right there. (laughs) What? What? What are we talking about shepherds for? They were the bottom of the barrel, the least of the least. I've had the opportunity to go to Israel and Jordan and uh, Egypt several times, and every time we've gone, we've gotten the opportunity to meet some shepherds. These shepherds smell like what they step in all the time. Between an entire tribe of shepherds, there's maybe five teeth. (laughs) And there's no soap. Uh, And I'm talking about, like, 21st century, right? way more so back then. They don't own chairs cuz they just everywhere they go, they just sit, they just this is how they take their meals. Which by the way my knees already hurt. This is just what they do. They were the lowest order socially by far. If one of these guys shows up at your door, you are not inviting them into your powder bath. Okay? They're going to do bad things in that powder bathroom. You're going to re- you're going to just want to call a realtor when that's over. They were the lowest of the low socially. Now Some of the great heroes of the Old Testament were also shepherds. Abram, certainly a shepherd. Moses, a shepherd. David was a shepherd. But socially, because of the enculturation of the Greek world and the Roman world, the shepherds were the lowest of the low. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. We know now these would have been the flocks of sheep that would have been used for Passover, They had no idea that they were about to encounter the Passover lamb. And an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord was always a reference to a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. And that angel of the Lord, Jesus, was now laying in a stone wrapped in cloths back in Bethlehem in a cave surrounded by sheep droppings. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, (laughs) to them, like this should not be. An angel of the Lord went to like, you know, the nice gated community next to Herod's palace. Nope. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were a triplicate. They were greatly afraid with great fear. They were freaking out. They were completely horrified. They were used to being out in the middle of the night with pitch blackedness, where you can't see this in front of your face and hearing all kinds of wild animals or perhaps bandits or whatever it might be. This absolutely shocked them and gave them great, great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, in this context, dealing about Israel, the 400 years of silence from God to his people, to the Son of God, Israel, is now over. I bring you the gospel, which is for all the people, singular, the people of Israel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel gives the resume of this one who was born. By the way, this is the first time an angel preaches the gospel. This is the last time. Time an angel will ever preach the gospel. If it was me and angels who have been in the presence of God in the throne room of God for eons of eons, I'm thinking those guys are probably pretty good at their job. Let them do it. No, no. God wants those who have come and seen, who've been wrecked by sin, redeemed by grace, to be the ones who give the gospel for the last 2,000 years. You'll never see an angel preach the gospel again. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is a Savior, not like that guy in Rome. Oh, he's got some, he's got some strength. But this one, he is Savior. He will rescue us from all of our ills. Oh, not economically, not relationally necessarily, not immediately anyway, but all of the issues of sin. Who is Christ? He is the appointed one from Psalm 110, from Psalm 2. He is all of Leviticus. He is the sacrificial system. It's not a policy or a program. It's a person, and he is the Lord. He is the sovereign one, and he's just been born in Bethlehem. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You're thinking, why would you put a baby in a manger? That's gross. Even shepherds know better than that. God is sovereign. Mary and Joseph had no idea when they set out from Nazareth, this is going to be impacting so many other lives for so many millennia. The sign is they're gonna find other children, probably in Bethlehem, maybe even some that have been born. But the one that's wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, he is the one. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Now you gotta just understand there's one angel. The shepherds are out there, they're squatted down looking at this, and they're about to fall over, and it's overwhelming, one, one. And it's like the rest of the angels are like, get on with it! And then they just push him out of the way and they just, start, they just start praising. They just can't believe it anymore. Now, we forget that these angels are cognizant, conscious beings who understand that every single thing that is wrong in the world is because of the separation between God and man. Hear that again. Every single thing that is wrong in the world suddenly st- certainly stems simply from Genesis 3. When God and man were separated in perfect relationship, all of the problems in the world began to, sh- to reverberate out exponentially. And the angelic realm understands this. God and man have been, in a sense, separate. Something innocent was having to die for the guilty. For thousands of years through the sacrificial system, God and man have been separate at a distance. But now, God is with us. And these angels understand what this means. The one who had created them, the one who had created everything, was becoming a part of his own creation so that he could bridge the breach back between God and man. I don't know if you've had time or if you will make time to contemplate and to consider. If you're an angel, you know what's about to happen. How many of those hosts of millions of hosts of angels would have gladly stepped forward and done what Jesus did? And yet none of them could. They knew what this was, and so they gave great joy, great praise. They sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth... Peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't know if you do this, but circle, emoji, underline, like highlight, italics, bold, something. Luke 2.14. Please understand the order because this is true for all of human history. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And you can't have peace on earth unless we're giving glory to God in the highest. There is a sequence. There is an order. There is a, a... a pathway, we might say, that has been affected by this person. When the angels went away from them into heaven, you get the sense that they just exploded into the night sky, and they still kind of can't believe that they're getting to herald this, to proclaim this. And so you get the idea that they just sort of slowly back away and pop back into their side of the veil. When the angels went away from them from he- into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, hey, let's go to Bethlehem. Yeah, good idea, you think? I mean, they're just right there. It's like a two-mile walk. Now, I want you to understand the the crazy comparison between this. You remember the scribes and the Pharisees and all the priests when Herod was saying, hey, where's the child to be born? They said, oh, Bethlehem, and, and it's only five miles away. They never bothered to go. They never bothered to go and check this out. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They understand that God has given them revelation. That's an important penetrating question for each of us. Do we understand, do you, do I understand that the Lord has made this known to us? Not transmitting myth and legend, he has made this known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Hmm, that's a tip off. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, this is two years before the Magi will ever show up. So don't get hung up on timing. What Did they have to move the, the wise men out of the way? No, 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 they're not there yet. They're too, Remember, they're in, your, they're in your living room, not in your den. they They got two years before they can get there. They're still a good ways off. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It is exactly as God said it would be. God is with us. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. And that's been the program and the process of the church for 2,000 years. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So what do we take away from this very familiar Advent passage talking about experiencing the with us God, that God is with us? Just a couple quick implications on this. Let me start off by saying it this way. This might be a bit of a surprise, but as I thought this week and as I was thinking about our people and the families and some of the griefs uh, of which I'm familiar, many that are, of course, not familiar, the, 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 the fears, the anxieties, the nervousnesses, the relational fractures, all these things, as I read through this passage, why are the angels praising God as they are? Well, because of this first point. Christmas is the end of fear. 359 times we are told in the Bible, do not fear. It's the most frequent imperative in the text. Do not fear. Do not fear. Since we died spiritually and experienced separation from God, in that of Genesis 3, we all have some sort of fear. Fear of being a fraud, fear of being this, fear of being that. But Christmas is the end of Fear. All of us are afraid of something. We may not even know precisely what it is, but that's what the glory of God does. It reveals all of our stress fractures. Like the book of Hebrews says, a sharp two-edged sword. It reveals all the false things that we secretly rely on. All of us come into this world with a batch of fears, and they get developed over a lifetime of cultural and contextual bombardment. And we do our best to self-regulate and to minimize and mitigate the things of which we are afraid. What is fear? Fear is is wrapping yourself away and trying to make yourself safe or feel safe. It's wrapping ourselves up in all the little gods that we think will make us safe, family or friends or job or accessories or fleeting feelings of security, even though we instinctively know that they are extremely fragile. The glory of God reveals they are finite in the light of the glory of God. The sheep the shepherds were watching could only provide a temporary covering compared to the lamb that was born in Bethlehem that day. We fear because we know these things really can't keep us safe at all if we ever allow ourselves to really think that far. And that's the reason so many of us feel so anxious, so panicky, so futile. Fear, it all comes from not trusting God. Maybe it comes in the form of rejection, what if people figure out what I'm really like, that I'm really not able to do the thing that I'm doing? I call that being a pastor. What if everyone figures out that I actually have no clue whatsoever what I'm doing? That fear of rejection exists 24-7. Maybe the fear of failure. What if I mess this up? What if you blow all this up? What if you're just simply not good enough? Fear of the future. What if stuff happens that wrecks all your plans and all your protections? <laughs> It will. It will. I can't imagine anybody in this room whose life has gone 100% the way you purposed and planned. God loves you too much to allow that to happen. What about death? What happens when that happens? But Christmas is the end of fear. And so second point to carry right on top of that, fear not, behold. It's what the angels Tell the shepherds, fear not, but look, behold, take it in. Grasp it, understand it. Since God is with us and since Christmas is the end of fear, it means that the one who has come is the Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. So we can actually have peace with God, even though we don't deserve it. We can trust that His will and plan for our life is even better than ours, even though He knows our darkness and our depravity better than we know it ourselves. When we behold God's glory, everything else falls into proper perspective. Fear not. Behold. And when we do that, everything else seems to fade. We don't fear rejection because I'm accepted by the one who actually matters most or matters at all. We begin to not fear failure because Christ has already accomplished our eternality on our behalf. We don't fear the future because Christ is coming and he guarantees our life everlasting. We don't fear death because we've already been translated into his kingdom of light. We're from the future, living in the present because of what Christ did in the past. Christmas is the end of fear. Now, if we were to carry that notion with us through January, all the way past Easter, into the summer, beginning the fall of next year, showing up at Christmas... I am convinced and confident we would be a joyous people and we would begin to experience increased peace on earth by beholding the glory of God. That would be the gift of God to every believer this Christmas season. Third and final point it goes like this I wore my dad's purple terry cloth robe. My dad had just gotten back from the Korean War. Pretty sure he didn't buy that robe. He may have taken it off of somebody else. I'm not real sure. But he had this natty, ratty, gross, purple terry cloth robe. And it was time at our church for the Christmas pageant. Oh, you remember the Christmas pageant. And, you know, the pastor's daughter, well, she was gorgeous. And she ended up marrying an NFL football player. So, of course, she played Mary. Todd Weddington, his dad was an elder. And Todd was also popular. And Todd also drove a Cougar. That's right. A mercury cougar. And so Todd got to play Joseph, of course. Jennifer McKinney, now with the Lord. Jennifer McKinney was the prettiest girl in our church, so she got to play the angel. My brother is my brother. He's three years older, and he would pound on me for his exercise regime. And so he got to be first shepherd and then there was another guy named Kyle, another guy named Lawrence. They all got to be shepherds. And then at some point someone looked around and went, "Hey, wait. What about Howdy Duty? What are we going to do with him?" And they're like, "Well, we don't want to, you know, disgrace the sheep or the donkey or the you know, we, what are we going to We'll make him like a like an under shepherd kind of a thing." And so I had to get my dad's nasty purple terry cloth robe that smelled of Raleigh and Winston cigarettes. Party on, dad. And some Sears dish towel and wrap it around my head and stand there as the shepherd that really wasn't even enough to be a shepherd. And that's why I love Luke too. Unto you, purple terry cloth loser from the panhandle, was born this day. And all that could ever go wrong in you, to you, <gasps> by You, this baby, will become because he loves you. You're not Todd or Kyle or Steve or Lawrence. You're you. It's an amazing symmetry, this God of ours. (laughs) There's a man named Joseph who takes the God-man and wraps him in cloths and places him in stone, as it were. And then some 33 years later, another man named Joseph, oh, this one from Arimathea, will take the God-man. And he will wrap him in cloths, and he will place him in rough-cut, hewn stone. This baby that was born to die. Glory to God, peace on earth, because unto you was born in Bethlehem Christ the Savior who is Lord. I pray this Christmas, perhaps like no other previously, you would receive and you would believe Emmanuel. He is the with us God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the Christmas season where we do get an opportunity to pause and to really contemplate the coming of Christ, the bridge over the breach of our death and separation between you are God and ourselves, because of our own failure, depravity, are prone to wonderness. But Father, you are the God, as the Carol says, who gives us worth, may we be persuaded that that is true. Father, if there's anyone here this morning somehow in a Bible church in East Texas, in a Sunday in December that does not believe that is simply still trying to protect themselves and eke out and scratch out security for themselves, would you release the white knuckle hold that they have on their soul? And would you give them the gift of the gospel with great joy? Would they receive it? and Would they believe it? Would they have the courage to talk to someone about it that they know? For the rest of us, Father, who are struggling with anxieties, fearing losing control, fearing losing security and protection, would you bathe us in the warmth of peace and joy that comes from praising you? So we pray all these things, Father, the only way we can in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen.